Now, it's your task to create the cat hawk in Photoshop. The cat hawk. <laughs> I, wow. I mean, is it a hawk with a cat's face or is it a hawk with like cat legs? I mean, well, maybe a cat with a beak. But now you, what you wanted to do was add the ability to psycho cats to fly. That's terrifying. That's why I got into retouching, to be able to create cat hawk. I mean, does it get deeper than that? To create new forms of life. That's why I got into retouching. <laughs> Hello and welcome. This is episode number 32 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast. The show in which we talk all about retouching and post-production. So if you are into that, this is the show for you. This is the podcast in which we take a deep dive into common retouching techniques, best practices, and have a peek behind the scenes of the image making process. The show is brought to you by our high-end retouching studio, Boutique Retouching, and the online educational platform LearnPostProduction.com. My name is Daniel, I am your host and also the founder CEO of Boutique Retouching. Before we get started with today's episode though, I have to mention producing such a podcast takes quite some time and dedication. If you appreciate what we're doing here and if you enjoy listening to the show, maybe if you get some value out of it, if you are happy with the show, we would be happy too if you were to hit that subscribe button in whichever podcasting app you are using and potentially also become a long-term listener of the show. Now, usually I now would lead into the conversation that I have with our guest or had with our guest, but due to the current situation, I want to address this briefly. So we are in the midst of a pandemic and I hope everyone who's listening is safe working from home if they potentially can, not everyone can. I really hope you still can make a living. We as researchers, usually we are not that much affected speaking we can work from home but then a lot of jobs in the photography and in the production world have been cancelled or postponed so i hope it has not affected you that much and you still can continue pursuing what you love doing so i hope on my side that this podcast especially this conversation that i had with joseph perry which was at times kind of hilarious so I hope this can be sort of your escape from reality for a few minutes. And yeah, so let's get into the interview with Joseph Perry. I have a guest here, Joseph Perry from the UK. And hello, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, man. So, okay, great. let's let's now start it for real and being like serious, even though I yeah, we're professionals. We can be serious. I mean, speak for yourself, but, you know. <laughs> well, I, ju I just know you as a very professional person. So let's do a very professional podcast here. Joseph Perry, he has a website, which is josephperry.co.uk. And let's talk about how you got into retouching. Maybe you can start from the beginning. What was your first point of contact with Photoshop and retouching? Mm, that's a good one. Um, how did I get into retouching? So I was a musician, touring musician for quite a few years, then went from music into sound engineering and music production. 
worked a few festivals, etc. And then naturally being in, around kind of live music and this is their very visual things as well as kind of audio, kind of got into getting a camera and stuff. And I ended up dating someone in America for a couple of years and I bought a camera. I think it was a, is it Nikon or Nikon? I don't know these days. One's American. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as you don't call it a Canon, then you should be fine. <laughs> so I basically had one of those. I think it was like a D3100, I think. And this was probably seven years ago or something. You have to be cautious. People, they look up dates and they're saying, no, no, this camera came out like one year earlier and stuff. I mean, they can, they can totally do that because at least then they'll have, you know, it'll, it'll be easier to follow. It's kind of like if I try to stick to a format that's easier to follow than the Star Wars kind of layout. I mean, you can't really be, you can never really be that angry because I mean, loads of people have Star Wars and you look at the order they brought those out. That's yeah. just ridiculous. Do you that's know what I mean? True. So at least mine is in a chronological order. Just, <laughs> just the years <laughs> might be off. <laughs> okay, let's get back to like you getting a camera, like doing live music. Yeah, so basically you went to America, shot a few things and, <laughs> and uh, bought like a guitar and stuff, ended up coming back and moved into portraiture and landscape and hiking and stuff like that. I just kind of realized that I really enjoyed people and connecting with people and the way that light works against people. Yeah, so after kind of getting into taking pictures of people and stuff, I started moving more down the kind of fashion route. And then Photoshop came into it from the aspect of color grading. And then after kind of color grading, it moved into compositing and learning how to put things into scenes that weren't there originally. And over time, you just kind of naturally start seeing, you know, really terrible advice on YouTube about skin smoothing and stuff like that. So obviously oh, I went down that. Yeah. Kind of I mean, that's, of, that stuff still sticks around and that's sometimes the downside of free education. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's unregulated, isn't it? Maybe like, I guess, unregulated from a certain people would consider to be an industry standard of what's acceptable. It's kind of, that's a weird one, isn't it? Because it's down to personal preference, but at the same time, it isn't. Yeah, but, but then it's like <laughs> also in the agency world, there is no standard in terms of, I mean, as long as the client accepts it. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So obviously moving from photography, I ended up writing for a blog called DIY Photography. And there I met kind of Stefan, uh, like Olive, you no, yeah. Stefan, obviously. Uh, yeah, we've, we've done a podcast with do as well. like the Mr. Oh, Mr. Raw uh, Exchange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I ended up getting first introductions to Photoshop and just what you could do with it from Stefan and then ended up meeting a whole range of people from like, say, Pratik through to Natalia Tafarel and yourself and David Nealands and Natalia Fadaheva and all these people, just wonderful retouchers, really, and learning over the years. So you're contact to Photoshop was actually quite late uh, when I interpret what you've just said correctly. Um, so you started with photography. So how, how did it come that you were looking for learning more about Photoshop, basically? I think I just got one of those brains, man. Just <laughs> I always want knowledge. I always want to, anal well, I can't not analyze things and, and break things apart. So I think it's kind of a natural progression that once you kind of get into taking pictures of things, you start realizing light moves color with it and that creates kind of contamination and issues. And then depending on how hard or soft a light source is in relation to a subject, that changes the texture. And 
sometimes these things create problems so then you have to learn how to fix those problems but then you fix those problems and it looks fake so then you're like how do i fix this and make it look real and <laughs> it's like a it's like a push and pull constantly of trying to create something realize those problems and then try to avoid the problems in the first place but until you say for example you've done one shoot and there's a lot of issues you're kind of it's too late to go shoot again so you're just trying to learn how to fix those problems and the next shoot you don't make hopefully a lot of the same mistakes but then there are new issues and it's just it's a constant thing and yeah it's going back and forth so you can either decide forever fix your photography issues in photoshop or learn from it saying okay i have to fix this because it's not turning out how i want to and then go back to photography and say okay i'm not going to make this mistake and then all of a sudden if your quality is good enough there's another world of where you could take your image Yeah, definitely. I think you start noticing as well that when you start with a really fantastic image, it's funny that the, the amount of retouching you do sometimes is actually very little and it just looks incredible. And you just kind of sit back and go, nice. <laughs> I didn't have to do much there. <laughs> it still looked yeah. awesome. Then other times, you know, you're you have these like three you're, hours you're on starting it. <laughs> with one image and then you're like, oh, that was so much work. And then I have to do pretty much every single fix throughout like 10 images. Yeah, that's why it's better to kind of obviously fix the source, but no doubt everyone that's been on the podcast has probably <laughs> pushed that point. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's like even when I I take images with someone, as um, there's just so much attention you uh, you can pay throughout a shoot, or attention you can spend on one single thing, and then later in post you always notice something that you could have done maybe before. So this. It's not never gonna end, probably. Yeah, I think it's because of that thing of um, sometimes the facial expression or the movement of something was so perfect that if you're kind of jumping in to fix something that you wouldn't have to therefore do in retouching, it can kind of destroy the flow of something, which means the images you end up getting are actually worse. Uh, so sometimes it's better to just deal with the problems after the fact if the base image looks a lot better because you didn't intervene but then other times if someone's like say just stationary and it's a very resting bitch face style kind of shot then obviously you can get in there and tidy up hair and clean off kind of dandruff from shoulders and things like that but it's uh it, it just depends on the, the style of shoot and what's happening yeah and there goes my pg writing for this episode <laughs> Hey, uh, What is, did you expect anything else? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been no, <laughs> I think from now on it just can be more relaxed as as soon as I'm like, okay, there's no PG writing and now we can <laughs> can talk about adult stuff, like removing nipples and... Beautiful. I mean, I can't say I've ever done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, how did you get here? How did I get here? As in retouching or to this part of the subject <laughs> maybe <laughs> what everyone is um asking themselves like how did they end up on this podcast like oh damn it i mean i asked myself that just about existing like how how did i get here <laughs> yeah so i mean just so keep rolling. yeah let's, let's just stick with how did you get to retouching photography um then trying to learn stuff and basically uh, fixing your images which I guess ultimately made you a better photographer going back and forth between fixing issues in your photography issues in, in Photoshop, then learning about Photoshop and taking it back to photography, getting better there, and then having this back and forth, which elevates both skills, basically. Yeah, definitely. I, I do think that it's quite interesting. You don't 
really seem to get. Because obviously what you just said there on paper, it sounds beautiful. Oh, this idea of you can be a wonderful photographer and a wonderful retoucher and they both work hand in hand with each other. And then the reality of it seems to be that very few people can do both to an exceptional standard, but probably probably down more to time, perhaps. Because I know there's a, there are a few retouchers that can do both. And, or are they photographers that retouch well? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's the thing. But, it, but it's also well. a difference if you can do something and if you do something as a business and offer it as a service. Because then you're basically running two businesses and market to two different audiences, which, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so back to Photoshop. As we just started with deeper conversations, like getting really deep what's on a philosophical level. If I were to ask you what retouching means to you, is there any way someone can answer that? What does retouching mean to me? Um, it's multiple levels, really, on a, on a surface level. I mean, we a, can go deep. Yeah, I mean, going through the different levels of it, I guess, on the surface level. is Like a, inception. So I just so, incepted this thought yeah. of like... I was thinking more like Shrek and the Onion. You know, it's layers. <laughs> <laughs> then um, let's peel off the layers of what retouching means. Yeah. I mean, on the top layer, it's just an accidental means to an end for me. I didn't know that I'd get into it. I just somehow did. And it's just a means to an end to make money with uh, the least amount of physical effort possible. <laughs> Moving your wrist. You know, it's a lot of mental energy doing retouching, but the physical side is pretty relaxing. It's just sit in a chair. <laughs> but... um. I mean, as you get deeper into it, I guess, oh, I don't know, actually, I guess the moral side of it, I don't really... See, uh, now we're getting deep. I guess the moral side of retouching is an interesting one because there's two ways of viewing it, really, that, or at least two that I can think of. I mean, the first one is, are we creating art that isn't supposed to necessarily be realistic because it is supposed to be aspirational and, and just a true kind of testament to how uh, wonderfully we can kind of trick the brain into enjoying simplicity in, in an image and kind of harmonious things coming together whether it's you know clean shapes or a wonderful color palette but then the other side of it is well no because when you put this ripped person in a swimsuit it makes me feel like shit because i don't look like that um so you know fuck you you're creating fake standards <laughs> so now we've talked about like how you got into retouching and how you got like from photography into retouching going back and forth and how it was helpful so learning about retouching can you talk about the experiences like because i know it usually works in stages where you learn something then you because you're comparing yourself to your peers it's like uh, or i already know photoshop and then you get introduced to other people who know a lot a lot more than you how was it for you to learn about photoshop over time and was there maybe this moment where it hit you like oh Now I my understanding has grown so much all of a sudden. How was it? Um, frustrating. Incredibly frustrating. Because I'm someone that takes a lot of pride in um, anything that I put my name to. I want it to be the best it can be. So obviously when you're working with the best knowledge you have available to you at that moment in time, but that knowledge isn't actually the best knowledge, you know, you kind of, you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall, really. <laughs> oh yeah, that <laughs> but, feels um, awful. But I, I yeah. guess, uh, as I was saying, it usually comes in stages. Um, yeah. I don't know. You, you, you're frustrated at some point, And as you said, banging your head against the wall and 
things are not working and then you start comparing yourself to others, which maybe it's helpful, but it's also not helpful in terms of the frustration. Uh, yeah, I, think, I mean, I think it's not helpful when you don't actually know what's yeah. good. I think I think the biggest thing about retouching isn't necessarily learning how to be a good retoucher in terms of technique, because I mean, that stuff comes from practice, but I mean, it's probably more identifying what is a problem, why is it a problem, and what is actually a good image, because healing a spot out, I could teach my mum to do that. You know what I mean? Like the techniques in retouching aren't necessarily that difficult, most of them, but it's understanding why should I remove that spot or why should I dodge and burn this yeah. cheek to change the shape? And if I am kind of changing the shape, what's my goal? Like, why am I trying to actually change the shape of this? Why is it distracting? And I think it's, you, you know, you have to understand why you're making the decisions you're making. And that's, that's probably the time consuming thing. So when you were saying about this idea of, you know, was there a moment where everything just kind of clicked? I don't think there was, but there was a click moment of a realization that everything had come together more than it had before. So it's kind of like, I didn't sit down one day and go, whoa, nice. I've just learned the best thing in the world and now I'm great. Like that never happened. It kind of, it was always just this thing of, I would send it off to people, you know, that I trusted, get opinions back from them. And you just realize like over the years, the list of things that's wrong gets less and less and less. And eventually they just go, no, oh, it looks cool. So then you kind of go, oh, that's weird. I'm used to being like three pages of things wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I guess, you know, after a couple of um, couple of years of sending stuff off and the only things you get back really are, you know, personal preference. Um, and they're not actually things that are wrong. It's just, oh, I prefer it if it's like this, but it doesn't look bad or whatever. Then that's probably the gentle realization there that you've kind of progressed and got further. Cause, um, but you also have to learn about these what is a preference because like even working for clients i mean every one of us could post an image and we could get feedback oh this could be improved or this could be improved and then when you work for clients it might often be a decision that your client has made over this this one feature or this one change or something yeah. that actually hasn't been changed because your client didn't want it yeah and i think ultimately if, if you're not creating work with the intention of it being you know, an extension of your own desires and standards, then ultimately all that matters is what makes the client happy to, to pay you <laughs> pretty much. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really weird one with retouching because it's kind of like two streams of, of standards at any one time. The one is, oh, if everything is allowed to be perfect, not like perfect meaning overdone, I just mean perfect as in literally just done to a standard that we'd be really happy with as an, as an individual. Um, and then there's that. And we're constantly fighting that and chasing that and trying to be the best we can be at it. Yeah, now we're getting into like the, the business side. It's maybe a good point to talk about this because as you just said, there's this level of quality we hold ourselves accountable to. And also running a business, there's the need of always trying to cut down on time and trying to be more efficient to uh, possibly make a little bit more money on the job. Yeah. And there's always this push of how far can I go in terms of cutting down on time and how can I still be somehow aligned with my quality expectations, but ultimately knowing that 
all we need to do is to satisfy our client. And that ultimately has to be our goal, despite our quality expectations. Yeah. And I think that that's probably one of the hardest things to, to learn because it's a massive punch to your ego because you're like, but this doesn't look good. Yeah. And they're like, it looks great, like, but it doesn't. They're like, it does. You're like, but it doesn't. They're like, it does. <laughs> and you're like, ah. Or if they come with a change and they say, oh, could you change it like this? And you're like, um, that's not going to look good. Or it goes against the whole conceptual work you've done for the series or something. Yeah, I mean, I guess in situations like that, though, there is some leeway to kind of have discussions with clients and kind of put your thoughts across as to why you don't think it's a good idea. But ultimately, you're always at the mercy of whoever's throwing you the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's running the business side of it. I know many people who always want to put out the best work as they can. And ultimately, it will reflect in how much time they are spending per image. And that ultimately results in making possibly less income as they could make. In terms of business, that's not practical, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, with everything, you're basically just limited by the time and money ratio. And I think if you're spending more time on something, you should charge more for it. And the only reason that at some point there's going to come a kind of uh, a cutoff point where people aren't prepared to pay more because the difference in quality between, say, for them, 80 and 100% which is like double the money or something yeah. like for them. It's just, it's, it doesn't matter. Like the, they don't see the difference or care for the difference. So those situations is kind of the learning to develop perhaps a uh, good enough approach to things and not good enough. Meaning I can, you know, beg, borrow and steal my way through making crappy decisions and get money from doing the least amount of work. But it's more, how can I make this image look, the best it can look in the least amount of time. Like, what are the biggest changes I can make? Uh, so you're still keeping the quality as high as possible. But then perhaps when it comes to things that take a lot of time, like, you know, micro dodge and burn and things like that, perhaps even the output size of the image of where it's going, it doesn't even need that. And actually doing it might end up making it look worse, you know, like overdone. Yeah. But also, um, in terms of workflow, there are often series by series, you can cut down on time in terms of, sitting down before you start retouching and figuring out, okay, how do you structure your workflow in terms of what can I save in terms of time per image because I can copy certain things from one image to another. That's the workflow thing. So well, it's just efficiency of time, isn't it? Like yeah. um, this, that goes back to that, that money and time yeah. Yeah. ratio. The more figuring time you out can save. What, what works money. and what is efficient in terms of Yeah, the whole project you're working on. Yeah, like for example, if you've spent three hours on one image on removing creases and clothes, it might be, you might end up having better results if you then just copy that across to every image. And so even though you did a lot of work up front, it makes the rest of the images, you know, way faster to work on, things like that. So. Or what I also like to do is starting with the color grading. It might take a little bit of time to figure out what works for a series, but as you dive this in, you can just copy it over, adjust the mask, and then you know for every image where you yeah. end up and can decide, okay, I have this much time left. And sometimes color and contrast changes or the color grading at the end. And when we talk about the end, usually on the top layers of your project, they can have a huge impact on how images look 
And then you can decide, like, okay, how much time do I have left to spend on the other retouching tasks? Yeah, I agree with you, man. Like doing color grading first is probably one of the best ways of cutting down time because a lot of things that you consider to be issues, a lot of times they actually end up being heavily reduced and removed kind of from a, from a nice color grade. So it's one of those things where you can reduce the amount of work you have to do by putting the final kind of vision over it first. It sounds really backwards, but if you work in retouching, you kind of understand that process and it makes sense. What I also want to point out when we talk about doing color grading first, it usually does not mean to do it in the raw file. No. I know some people, they push this because it's easy to uh, apply a preset and stuff in a raw converter, but then you lose all the flexibility in a retouching workflow. I mean, the only way that I've kind of seen a way of doing that and it's still not practical because you have to do it again at the end because obviously texture and shape and all those things are going to change is obviously duplicating base layer or a final layer then applying that kind of preset to it at the end um, but then the downside to that is you don't have that flexibility as you were saying plus it doesn't have the uh, the ability to kind of be adaptable to things and you also don't get to use it in the beginning kind of Unless obviously you want to change your blend modes like color or something and put it on top and then work under it, but it's still not quite the same because it's going to have very specific shapes yeah. kind of built into it. You know, it's one of those ones where I think anything where you're forcing something as concrete as that isn't necessarily the best way of, of going through a workflow, I think, because you always need flexibility. Yeah. You always need that ability to change anything at any point. That's true. For people who are just retouching for themselves, it might not be important. But when you're doing client mm. work and have revisions and people demand changes, then you need flexibility or it will ultimately yeah. result in you doing all the work again, which you definitely don't want as a freelancer. Yeah. I remember like when I um, first did editorial with someone that uh, needed some revisions, I was working in a way that was just really not flexible at all. And they basically wanted some images in like black and white. So um, they gave me some references and I ended up matching the references and then sending them back and like kind of working on them all. And then by the end of it, they're like, actually, you know what? I want these in color. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I literally exported these from raw in black and white. <laughs> so I ended up having to take the original raw file, putting it into Photoshop, changing it's like color blend mode. And then like, matching it over the top of the raw and then changing all the curves. And I got something usable out of it, but man, that was such a broken way. And it was like, that was probably one of those talking about light switch moments of, oh shit. Like that was definitely yeah. one of those ones where I was like, okay, moving forwards, no matter what anyone says, I am never going to be working with concrete pushed files in raw. It's always going to be as neutral and flexible as possible. And then anything that you want to change, do it in Photoshop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's so true. You still find things on the internet or like recommend recommending this or that way, which ultimately, as there is no standard what you should do or shouldn't do, there are things in a professional workflow when you work for clients that are just not practical and might come mm. back at you, biting you in the butt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, a lot of the education on, on FreeTube is it basically like it, they're coming more from an artistic expressional perspective and oh i think this looks good rather than 
oh, I've actually worked in the industry with Peter Jackson being his colorist or whatever. Like, it's never really industry people that are teaching this stuff for free because all of the people that are teaching, I'm not, not to say that you can't get fantastic information for free because you absolutely can. But I think the difference is when you, when you say, I don't mean it in a patronizing way, but when you get to like say our level of retouching and knowledge and things, I think that you have a far better understanding of what is good information and what is bad information. So you can listen to something and go, Mm. <laughs> and move on. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But if you're not there, you're just accepting this as the ultimate yeah. truth, I would say, and then you're applying it, then maybe you get to a point, if you're lucky, you get to a point where you can say, oh, this was rubbish or this was not helpful or it doesn't suit the workflow when you're trying to make money or whatever it is. Back then when I started, like there was not that much information. So it was not as a big of a deal if you learned something and and later had to discard this technique or whatever it was because you didn't go through hours and hours of material and um i don't know there's also no way of of checking in terms of how reliable a source is or how reliable a technique or what they're telling in a video is the false way of that is looking how many followers and likes they have <laughs> and if yeah. they have a lot of followers and a lot of likes you tend to think that their information is good which is yeah not, not true. always a good representation i've actually found it quite the contrary a lot of people that have the best information are the ones that no one's following because they they come off as boring you know because they're like oh this is how things actually work and this is how you know this is this is the reality of something and it's kind of like that thing if you watch action movies then you see how like fights go down and you're like oh that's so badass like you know imagine if i ever got into a fight in a pub it'd be so cool and then you actually see someone have a fight and it's so messy and silly and just you just kind of go wow and it's that thing of you don't know what's good until you've seen it but then when you've seen it you have to not have a romanticized version of it you have to have like the the blunt brutal kind of basic honest way of doing something and it's like a thing of you know when it gets to retouching and, and people get so excited about all these fantastic new techniques you just you still sit there and i'm just like i'm not being funny man just give me a healing brush stamp tool curves and uh pretty much do <laughs> pretty much do everything <laughs> but that's boring you know that's boring it's like well, tell me about frequency separation it's like we can do that but the problem with things like frequency separation is the people teaching about frequency separation don't necessarily like, so say for example go to youtube or whatever a lot of them are teaching frequency separation like it's a kind of a replacement factor rather than like an additional thing and i think that it really is difficult for people to kind of swallow the concept that a healing brush and a stamp tool and curves are basically all you need. You, you can do everything except shaping a file. And if theoretically, it'd be totally impractical. You could kind of use curves to like, you know, reshape a file by recoloring it and repainting it. It'd be so yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> There's no point. Well, yeah. You may as well just liquefy so, it. But, but then we're coming back to is getting all these views and likes. Usually it's either headlines or techniques that are sellable in terms of what they promise they make a promise and yeah usually yeah that's what i'm saying like quick results and ultimately leaving you with a worse result yeah they appear to have quick results yeah i think at first using kind of things which i don't really like referring to frequency separation as like a shortcut because i think that it is actually a very valuable tool for if you use it for certain things but i can see how it is used to shortcut certain things but like anything it really does go back 
at least in my opinion, to the aspect of knowing why you're you're making a decision to do something. And I never think that you should kind of go, I'm using this tool because I don't know another way of doing it. It should be, I'm using this tool because this is the correct tool for the problem ahead. And with where it's going, for example, the output is going on a billboard or a magazine or whatever, I can get away with this. And it's like, if you say, for example, did a frequency separation and you're kind of splitting, you know, the, the bands and then you just go, okay, I'm going to use the stamp tool set to like current layer. And I'm just going to over this really rough patch of skin, just gently kind of go over just on the high layer at like say 2%, just a couple of times, just to really gently soften it down, but not mess around with the majority of the color information. If you do that badly or overdo that or do it on a file, which is really close up, that's a very damaging thing to do to the information. If you're doing it on something like, say, e-commerce or something like that, where someone is further away, that could end up saving you a lot of time. And the visual results would look pretty much the same from the size of the file. So it's one of those things where it's, it's very difficult to kind of explain tools and techniques to people because they always demonize something or not. They're like you either get people to go frequency separation is shit or frequency separation is the best thing in the world. No one ever just goes frequency separation is a tool. It has a place. Use it when you can get away with using it if time is is a concern as long as it doesn't sacrifice enough quality for it to be perceivable. You know, like people don't really think of tools and solutions. They just think of things as this is the best technique in the world. <laughs> It's just weird to me. <laughs> They just think about like techniques and seeing it as this is a workflow, a pattern of working that I should stick to. <clears throat> and yeah. um, I had conversation with photographers about this frequency separation thing where I thought you could get better results if you were to learn dirging and burning. And they the argument always comes down to, oh, but frequency separation is so much faster or dodging and burning takes me so much longer to do the same. And I see where they're coming from, but they are choosing the wrong tool here just to avoid the learning curve they would have to go through to learn dodging and burning. And then if they were to undergo this training process of, yeah, learning how dodge and burn really works, then they could spend the same amount of time and get a better result. But instead of that, they are trying to skip this learning process by using frequency separation because it's easy to sell. It's easy to say, oh, just brush over. There's a really good point based off of that, actually. I've got a pretty good example for it. You know, there's this quote that said, um, you're not paying me to push a button. You're paying me to push the right button. I mean, to put that into like a perspective of what you were just saying of people picking the wrong tools and stuff. I bought like a, a three series like BMW about three months ago and I drove it for like two months and then it just wouldn't start. And I was like, what the fuck's going on? Took it to a garage and this garage had it for five weeks Ouch. and just no, no, no information. And then I took it to a specialist who said like, you know, we are true specialists in BMWs. Like, this is what we do. Took it to them. Within one hour, they called me and they were like, this is it. And I was like, the difference in price was like five an hour to the garage that had it for like yeah. five weeks and 80 an hour to this garage. So I was like, oh my God, I'm paying like 20 times the amount per hour. This is going to kill me. And then they were just like within one hour, they're like, yeah, this is the problem. So it's, it's that thing of, you know, you just, you're always going to have people that are either afraid of the learning curve at first, and then they just get beaten around to it through either intrigue, interest, or 
lack of progress um or people that just avoid it in total or you're always going to have people that are always interested in just being the best they can be and i don't know if this is the correct thing to say but i've i'm just going to kind of say it and see how i feel afterwards i guess i don't necessarily feel like it's our job to educate people that don't want to be educated it's our job to put the best standard and practice techniques and workflow and information out there and make it accessible to people that wish to have that information because you can't change people that don't want to learn but you can empower people that want to learn and you can empower them by giving them the correct information so they can flourish you know i also find it more interesting to put out this quality standard of of retouching work now we have a lot of clients demanding images that should look unretouched and you can take put a lot of work into those uh, images and really make them look like nothing was touched up and that's the the quality that goes into it which ultimately can lead to more clients demanding this standard and then either the other people who are working with bad workflows or bad techniques not getting to this level they either have have to acknowledge that they have to change or they're going to go out of business at some point of time yeah well i mean it's just that's just adaptability isn't it i mean you could have to say the same thing about photographers or cameras yeah that's always good being on the forefront of the industry and trying to establish a new standard instead of running after it yeah i mean the standard will probably end up just being no retouching at all or retouching becoming less of a a skin thing and more of a color thing because ultimately color is a massive massive impact on the way an image is perceived so you can get around skin with great lighting fantastic model and an amazing makeup you can get around messy hair through using products and things like that you know but one thing you'll never be able to kind of get away from is is color contamination and how light interacts and bounces and how blood flows through the skin you know there's there's things like that which you just you're not really ever going to be able to practically fix so i think there's always going to be room for for retouches there but i mean that level of retouching is it's pretty high i would say color is probably the last thing that retouches tend to get into and it's also the longest and hardest thing to actually nail Yeah, that's true. I would argue not a lot of information out there that helps you to establish a baseline in terms of getting to the point where you can make decisions on your own because it's not teaching you this one tool and then you are just doing it and can repeat it. So you have to make more conceptual decisions. Yeah. Color is like the only stage of retouching where your brain fights itself. You know, <laughs> like when there's a spot on a face, you can remove it and no part of your brain goes, is that spot gone? You go, yeah, it's gone. I can see that it's gone. And then when it comes to color, you're like, is that too yellow? No, it doesn't. Is it just too? No. <laughs> the amount yeah. of color everywhere else in the image dictates what you think you're seeing. And then you're just like, oh, man. <laughs> so I like to do dodging and burning and stuff in black and white because it's easier on the eyes and there's less information hitting your brain all the time and then when you start doing color work again at some point you get this i don't know blindness by over information hitting your brain and your eyes all the time there's only one person i know retouching wise that dodges and burns in color and that's like david nealand's and his dodge and burn is still better than mine and i'm like what the fuck is going on (laughs) 
I just don't understand how you can dodge and burn in, in color. It's, <laughs> it's like the amount of saturation shifts and all those things are just crazy. And I'm, yeah, I mean, that uh, doesn't bother me. It's just I usually try to break up tasks throughout different images and then I do dodging and burning on one image, then the next image, then the next image. And I also oh, start. Okay. So then it's easier to spend long hours in front of the computer to just look at a black and white version of the image. So it's less stressful on your eyes. That's a cool idea. I've never really funny ever kind of thought of breaking down one image at a time well it, it helps like especially when you're when you're working on a series that it helps to keep your consistency because when you're starting to take away things you have to take them away in all of the images yeah and then it's easier to go from one image doing healing and cloning not necessarily taking one hair out and going to the next image and taking the same hair out but i was saying like doing healing and cloning and as the information that is, is still fresh in your brain, you go to the next image and doing healing and cloning there. And then you're doing dodging and burning there because like there's so much manual work where you can take images one direction or the other that you yeah. have to put in time then when you revisit the project the next day or something to figure out, okay, how far have I taken it there or how was my approach there? And it's easier to just go through and like, okay, I'm just doing it one image, one next image, next image, and go through these stages of work. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only time I've ever used that is for um, when I'm doing a color grade and kind of color matching. So say, for example, you're matching the color of, say, clothes or garments or accessories, and they have to be the same color, kind of tiling everything vertically and making sure they all match that way. So um, I mean, that's something you have to, because like, when you're getting into the physics of the eye, information that is hitting your brain is constantly refreshed and you need a reference close by to judge these differences and changes you're making so that's yeah, just definitely. biology dictating how we have to do something because like when you're switching from one image to the other the information is already gone so you have to have them side by side to make these adjustments yeah i think the other cool thing about that is it is all perception based like you can literally match things numerically and mathematically but yeah and they don't look right yeah you'll still look at them and go but no <laughs> you're like but because, it is the because, same but you're like but yeah it but but then it's i mean the, there are some old school retouches they are just taking spot readings of color and trying to adjust skin tones and stuff but as you just said it's like you can put in the numbers and sometimes end up with um that's not looking right because with our brains they take in more information than just these values they incorporate yeah. all the surrounding colors and the contrast into how we perceive things and that also influences how our colors should be pushed up or down or into different hues sometimes i think that's probably why it's one of the hardest things to learn because yeah you're constantly fighting yourself you don't even know what's right it takes a long time <laughs> it's not like okay make it just these numbers and as you made it in the the other image and then you're good to go it can get you close but usually it's not i feel like color is it's more like a feel thing. Color is like having sex in <laughs> You just feel when it's right. You just have to feel it, yeah. <laughs> like having pixel sex. So nobody can be offended by, by is saying that this. the new tagline for just retouching? Just like, oh, what do you do for a living? I have pixel sex. And I get paid for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess whenever anyone has asked me, because like obviously retouching is one of those things where if you're not a retoucher and you're not a photographer, no one really fucking knows what you do. No one knows what a retoucher is. Whenever I say I'm a retoucher, people literally think that it's something physical to do with touching people. 
And I, just, I usually end up saying, if you do my job badly, you call it airbrushing. If you do my job well, you have no idea. And that's, that's usually the easiest way of kind of explaining it to people. It's the same with sex. If, you, if you've done it badly, <laughs> you're going to know. And if not, you are not going to be told. <laughs> that sounds really dark. <laughs> no, but it's the truth. If, if I do sex properly, you won't even know I was here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in and out. So done. So this was it. Episode number 32 is a wrap. We will continue this conversation with Joseph Perry in the next episode. So stay tuned. Again, this show is brought to you by our retouching studio boutique retouching.com and also head over to learnpostproduction.com, subscribe to the newsletter to get informed when this school is actually going to be launched. Also, I hope you were not too bothered by our humor. We actually enjoyed this episode. We had quite some fun. I also hope you had some fun. And yeah, we put some bloopers at the end of this episode, as always, which were also hilarious. But yeah, we had fun. Also, stay healthy, stay safe during these times. And I talk to you in the next episode. life to me in itself is just it can be as boring or non-boring as you want it to be and i'm pretty nuts so i mean it's easy for life to not be boring but then it's also easy for life to be boring it's both ways pointless pointless didn't even need to say any of that did i <laughs> could have just not said anything cool good chap yeah it's like hey i'm gonna gonna lay out a path of thought and then the next sentence i'm just gonna and then I'm going to put a roundabout on it at the end and you can just come straight back down, back to where we were. You would be perfect to do just a podcast on your own. All seven of my personalities. <laughs> I am asking a question and I just continue talking, which is super dumb as a host. Anyways, speaking of wrapping it up, could I just go to the bathroom for like 30 seconds and then we are working on wrapping it up? Only if you don't cut that from the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I might put it at the, at the end of the podcast. Okay. You do. So you. Just go on. I'm going to cut it this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is getting too weird. <laughs>